0: On today's episode of Muskegon History and Beyond, we are going to travel back to the 1918 Spanish Flu epidemic that racked the world that was in the midst of a world war. My goal with this episode is not to politicize any issue, but merely to share what I discovered and to present it to you. It is then up to you to make any parallels or statements you want to draw from it. There is one exception to this, and that is a personal statement that I would briefly like to share. That statement is that I found some comfort in what I discovered in my research. That the responses that we have to today's pandemic are not a product of our modern time, but rather a product of human emotions, thoughts, and motivations. It is frequently said that history repeats itself, and I think after listening, it'll be hard to argue against that. And that for me, at least in this situation, I found some comfort in that. If in 1918 they could get through this terrible situation, then I know we can get through this as well. I also know that things will eventually get back to normal, and that this period certainly will be one of note in which future historians look back into and draw parallels to their own societies. I would also like to mention that I'm only going to cover the year 1918, but I will briefly mention that both 1919 and 1920 saw resurgencies of cases. However, as I have a feeling this is going to be a very long episode, I'm going to focus only on the year 1918, when the flu first arrived in Muskegon. Now, as they say, on with the show. To begin with, what is the so-called Spanish flu, and why is it named thusly? Well the Spanish flu, whose name we will get to in a second, is a strand of the H1N1 flu virus that we have around with us today that is mostly seasonal. For this year, however, possibly exacerbated by conditions resulting from World War I, the strand proved to be far more deadly. A study done in 2008 discovered that three genes enabled the virus to target the victim's bronchial tubes and lungs which in a weakened state allowed bacterial pneumonia to set in, which often resulted in the death of the victim. One of the things that made this flu outbreak sadder was that this method of the virus was potent, even against those, like young adults, with a strong and otherwise healthy immune system. Now, as for the name, Spanish flu, that came from the fact that Spain was one of the first countries to report the scope of the disease in their population. Due to the World War, many countries' presses were censored as you didn't want your enemies to know about your weakness. As Spain was neutral, the press was free to report on the disease and thus got to have it named after them. Lucky Spain. The leading theories as to its actual origin point to the United States in Kansas for where patient zero was located, but there's also a case to be made for Asia and France being the origin point. Regardless, with soldiers and supplies being shipped overseas daily, it quickly spread across the coast and traveled inward in the United States. Thankfully for Muskegon and Michigan, by the time it arrived, officials had some idea as to how to slow its spread, and thus Michigan's numbers were never as bad as the coast where it first appeared en masse. To follow the story of the outbreak in Muskegon, I'm going to present the information in a timeline form, which we are going to start on October 1st, 1918, when I saw an article mention one of the early steps taken for prevention of its spread in Michigan. That being that, the State Board of Health announced that funerals for victims of the flu. Would have to be private funerals instead of large public funerals to help limit its spread. At this time there were a few cases statewide and none in Muskegon yet, but that would change quickly. By October 9th there were 300 cases reported to the state and some schools in southern Michigan began to close. At this time there were no rules about reporting cases to the state, so numbers were voluntary, but we can see the flu's reach starting in southern Michigan and working its way northward. On the 11th of October, I found the first article that mentions the Spanish flu reaching Muskegon, with 20 cases reported in the city. On that same day, there was talk of closing churches and schools to help stop this spread. but rather than order them shut, it was merely suggested as a patriotic duty that organizers should take precautions. Remember, it is during wartime, and patriotism would be called on many times as a motivational carrot during the pandemic, something that I haven't really come across much with our modern pandemic. Statewide, there were 468 cases and 166 reported in Grand Rapids on the 11th. Now, just a quick sidebar here on how cases were reported. Usually, the numbers for a particular day are counted as from noon of the preceding day to noon of the current day. However, some were just a previous day's total. This is not always specified, though, so keep that in mind. I would also like to mention the population of Muskegon at the time. From records I found, Muskegon County had some 45,000 residents in 1918. We also have data from the 1920 census, which tells us that the city of Muskegon had a population of 36,570, which is about our current population in the city today. So while this doesn't give us a definitive number of residents living here in 1918, it does give us some perspective and a ballpark of those numbers. The following day, October 12th, the city physician, R.J. Harrington, who led the city of Muskegon's response and will play a huge role in the following weeks, called a meeting of an advisory board to discuss the spread in Muskegon and what steps to take. At the meeting, the group decided that they would not take steps to close schools, factories, theaters, or churches unless a greater spread of the virus was found, as they didn't want to take away any war work or the chance for education for local residents. They also said stopping the flu was largely an individual's matter and that they needed to do what was right. I know we haven't mentioned exactly what this is or how they thought the flu spread yet, but that is coming. Up to this point, I didn't see lots of information in the paper about the flu, but that will be coming up and I will share that when we reach the appropriate date on our timeline. While I don't have definitive knowledge, I think it's safe to assume flyers and posters were being put up with information for the public around town but maybe not on quite a large scale as of yet. October 14th is when I found the next update on the Spanish flu. Remember earlier when I said there wasn't really a plan to send numbers to the state? Well, by the 14th, that is becoming formalized and all register offices and doctors are now required to send data on deaths and cases to the state health board. So our number tracking will get better from here on out. However, with 1918's technology, There will still be numbers that had later corrections and some that weren't received in time to be included. October 14th would also see the death of John T. Johnson of Muskegon, who died at Camp Custer near Battle Creek, when they had an outbreak at the camp. Johnson, like many young Muskegon men, were recruited in the Army and were first trained at Camp Custer. In those close quarters of training camp, many men would succumb to the disease and die. On October 15th, some of the first restrictions in Muskegon were put in place. On that day, 30 cases were diagnosed and skating rings and dance halls were ordered to close. On October 18th, the governor of Michigan, Governor Sleeper, called a meeting of city mayors and health officials to discuss the pandemic in Michigan and what steps to take. Muskegon that day had 30 new cases and one reported death, which by at this point totaled to three deaths from the flu. Statewide, Michigan saw some 1,383 cases, and a call was sent out for doctors and nurses in cities being hit hard. In Muskegon, Dr. Harrington tried to reassure the populace, quote, It is no time to get hysterical. If people keep their heads and follow the suggestions given out, Muskegon's influenza epidemic will pass with no more serious results than in the progress of a number of epidemics of ordinary LaGribe, another name for the flu they had, that we've had in the city. He also would emphasize that this was important, as Muskegon was a vital town for the production of war materials, saying that, quote, no precaution should be overlooked, End quote. October 19th would be a big day in the pandemic, as statewide Michigan saw 1,890 cases and 71 deaths, which was a record high. At the previous day's meeting I mentioned, it was decided that the governor would use an executive order to close down many businesses and large gatherings. October 19th was the day these closings were announced and posted in the papers. I'm going to quote directly from that order. I hereby direct that all churches, theaters, moving picture shows, pool rooms, billiard rooms, lodge rooms, and dance halls shall be and remain closed until further proclamation, and that all unnecessary meetings, public meetings, or gatherings shall be avoided. Not all leaders who were at this meeting agreed with the order, though, including the mayors of Grand Rapids and Detroit, who argued that closing these places would hurt business and education. However, mayors from cities like Flint, who had been hit harder at the time, chimed in with saying that they wished they had closed the above things sooner as the flu had spread so rapidly in their cities that it was now hard to control. Muskegon and Muskegon Heights leaders decided to follow along with the order and issued a joint statement. Quote, all buildings closed are laid out in the above order. All banks and stores to close every evening not later than 6 p.m., all social functions and dances to be prohibited. Street cars and public vehicles must be operated with all windows open and with daily disinfection. Every factory is to maintain an inspector who shall make sufficient investigation and examinations as to the health conditions and to see to it that every employee showing indication of cold be refused admission. That the public schools be conducted under supervision of nurses, all children showing signs of cold. Remember that the wearing of masks to be furnished by the city authorities will be the best means to prevent the spreading of influenza. The public is informed that influenza is highly contagious and it is the duty of everyone to help stamp it out by following the rules laid down by the Board of Health. The newspaper besides including both of these orders also had an informational flyer page about the Spanish flu in which I will share a few select sections that I found interesting and informative. In listing the symptoms, it mentions The most common was aching in the head, eye sockets, and joints, a chill followed by a fever, and just a general feeling of feeling sicker than with an ordinary cold. Symptoms also included cough and running nose. I'm going to quote directly from the flyer here as it describes how it is spread. A sneeze or violent cough throws thousands of invisible droplets of mucus for several feet, and every droplet carries the germs of the disease even earnest conversation and probably ordinary breathing carries the infection a short distance. To avoid catching it, it was recommended to avoid crowds, those with sore throats and coughs, rooms colder than 65 degrees or hotter than 70 degrees, to work and sleep in fresh air, to clean your hands and avoid touching your mouth, avoid contact with sick people, wear a mask, cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze and compel others to do the same, walk to work instead of using streetcars, And if you do use the streetcar, turn your face away from others and towards the window. Keep your feet dry and your body warm. Avoid food that might have been coughed or sneezed on. And finally, after hearing all this information, they of course recommend that you don't panic or get frightened, as this will overworry your mind and fatigue you, making it harder to fight the disease. On a positive note, if you do get it, it mentions that you have a 200 to 1 chance of a full recovery, but warns not to try and fight through the sickness, as if it turns into pneumonia, nine out of 10 who got pneumonia from it died. Now that number seems incredibly high. I did see it in an earlier article in which another doctor claims that one quarter or one eighth of all who got pneumonia from the Spanish flu died. So I'm not sure if this was meant to frighten those into reading it, into following the advice, or if at the time that was what was on par for the local numbers. For sure though, the danger was in the pneumonia, so avoid catching that was wise at all cost. The closing lines of the flyer mentioned the stakes for Muskegon, bringing up the importance of its war work. Quote, The Board of Health can do only a small portion of the work. If the general public cooperates, as it should, Muskegon may pass through the epidemic without going through the experience of eastern cities and almost surely without serious interference with our war work. Not included directly in the order were restaurants, who didn't have to close by six, although it appears many did, but all employees were required to wear a mask and were subject to daily inspection by the Board of Health. Many thought schools should close, but it was decided that they remained open as it was far easier to control and monitor the kids. After all, if school was closed, they would congregate on their own anyway. Lastly, for October 19th, I found a regulation from Hackley Hospital that limited the number of visitors to patients with the flu to one to stop its spread from leaving the hospital. On October 22nd, with some expected 2,000 cases by day's end statewide and 700 deaths the day before, A statewide ban was put on high school and college football games and golf tournaments. However, regular golf play was allowed as the small group numbers were fine. While I couldn't find Muskegon numbers for that day, I did see that there were 75 cases in Muskegon Heights reported. Another feature of the pandemic that I first came across on this day was the addition of placards to houses in which a sick person resided. Once the diagnosis was made, City officials would attach a sign to your house stating that a resident inside had the Spanish flu and for others to stay away. As you might imagine, those inside weren't the most pleased by this, and frequently these signs were torn down. However, this was an illegal act and could lead to your arrest. On several later dates, I found reports of actual residents being arrested for this. October 23rd brought 32 cases and two deaths to Muskegon. Regulations that day were also laid out for schools and children. Children were afterwards required to wear masks at school, being allowed to take them off at their two recesses that they had a day. Reading a bit between the lines at quotes reported in the paper by Dr. Harrington, it seems that a growing sense of frustration from him and officials was creeping in as numbers slowly rose in Muskegon. Harrington said, quote, All doctors agree that wearing masks is the one preventative, and I have provided the mask through the generosity of the Amazon Knitting Company. You see, the Amazon Knitting Company had switched all their production for a few days to create cloth masks for everyone in Muskegon, free of charge, quoting Harrington again, and have appealed to the people to wear them. They have refused to do so. Influenza is spreading at an alarming rate, and from now on, it seems that all who suffer will have only themselves to blame. Harrington went on further about the importance of masks, saying that if the Muskegon police force was made of 500 policemen, he would make a mask order mandatory and would arrest all in public without mask on, citing that in other towns where mask orders had been made and followed, the flu was dying out. He also reiterated the importance of wearing a mask at home if someone was sick. By looking at the address of sick patients, it was determined that transmission between family members was a huge part of a number's increase, as whoever took care of the sick person ended up, without proper protection, catching it themselves and spreading it from there before they took a turn for the worse. This led to many tragic stories of entire families with influenza and either both parents dying or all the children dying around the same time. October 24th saw 46 cases and six deaths in Muskegon and renewed urgings by Dr. Harrington over the issue of wearing a mask. In an article posted in the Chronicle, he says, quote, while it has been stated repeatedly that the wearing of a face mask is about the only actual preventative, the schools where scholars and teachers are wearing the mask are the only place where the suggestion is being followed no attempt is being made to enforce the wearing of masks in the factories, stores, or other places where many persons are employed and work in close contact, end quote. The Chronicle suggested that maybe it'd be more likely to be followed if city officials wore masks whenever in public to set an example. It does also mention that, quote, a few sporadic instances where the suggestion, mask wearing in public, has been followed by individuals has resulted in their being conspicuous and an object of such curiosity, if not ridicule, that speedy abandonment of the mask has followed. A later effort would be made to encourage mask wearing by branding all who didn't wear them in public as slackers, but this didn't seem to have the desired effect though. On the 25th of October, Muskegon reported 60 new cases and several deaths from influenza. This continued with 40 cases and four deaths the following day, the 26th. It was also posted that there would be strict enforcement of the rules against public gatherings and business closures. It was also noted that gatherings for upcoming Halloween should be avoided, even if it was with trusted friends. Statewide on the 26th, Michigan saw 3,130 cases and 154 deaths. The 28th of October would be a bad day for Muskegon Heights, as they had 100 cases to report, but many more on the way expected. Muskegon saw a gain in net cases as well, because by October 29th and 30th, there's mention of the hospitals becoming full and the city turning to the Red Cross for help, who in turn transformed the house of Charles Moore Hackley into a hospital. Part of the reason was the one to two week recovery time for those patients who got influenza or developed pneumonia. Helen Hume, daughter of Lumber Baron Thomas Hume, was later noted for her service at this Red Cross hospital in her volunteer role as a cook and grocery shopper. Thankfully for Muskegon on the 31st, there were only 22 new cases, and overall things started to improve. This, however, would be a stabilization, not a complete drop-off. A summary of October reports 500 cases of influenza in Muskegon, but suggests that it is not all-inclusive. On top of this, though, there are also two cases of scarlet fever, three of diphtheria, three of whooping cough, and six chicken pot cases, all of which required quarantines. In October, Muskegon had a 7% fatality rate for those with influenza, which was a higher mortality rate than what soldiers experienced on the battlefront. Officials mentioned that they have done what they can, but quote, all manner of opposition to the restrictions enforced has cropped out and anything but cooperation has been shown by a number of business enterprises. Now at this point, I do wanna go on a slight tangent because one of the other things you see looking through the paper is information on various cures and preventatives during the height of the pandemic. One of the most interesting has to be the advice to keep skin, bowels, and mouth clean and to take a pleasant laxative daily to reduce your risk. Oil of Hemai was another popular tool advertised to prevent catching influenza. Instructions for that were to put a drop or two in your mask and breathe it in every 30 minutes as an antiseptic. If you did happen to catch the Spanish flu, Mustarine paste was advertised to help clear your airway. This was, as the name implies, a mustard-based product you rubbed on your chest and left there. A similar product that you might even use today that got a lot of attention during the pandemic was Vicks VapoRub, which according to their ad, would keep pneumonia from settling in, but was also flying off the shelf so fast you had to demand your pharmacist stocked extra of it. Now, whether any of these actually worked, I cannot say. However, Vicks is the only product that still seems to see widespread use today. While October was the month that hit Muskegon the hardest, November still was rough. November 1st saw 25 cases and November 2nd, 28. There was still pressure at the hospitals and an article mentioned sick patients waiting in the hospital for a discharge patient so they could have a room. With all this going on, local businesses still pushed to eliminate the early closing hours of 6 p.m. and to also allow for barber shops to open up. However, Dr. Harrington declined to lift the ban Quote, in spite of many protests and suggestions which have been received. As he feared, the epidemic was still exploding in Muskegon, and he did not want it to look like the city was letting its guard down, despite the inconvenience the ban presented. November 5th had 35 new cases and the 6th, 26. What made these different was that the addresses of those sick showed that the disease was being spread by the community instead of being transferred to other members of the household. Dr. Harrington quoted on this. It is known that the spirit of the health orders and suggestions have been violated frequently in the holding of little parties and meetings, and it is presumed that in spite of all attempts at isolation of persons suffering with the influenza and pneumonia, neighbors and friends are visiting in the homes so afflicted in this manner, actually flirting with death. On November 7th, Governor Sleeper announced that the statewide ban via executive order would be lifted the following day, opening up churches and theaters and public gatherings, but would be left to local authorities if they wanted to keep the ban or parts of it in place. It was discussed in Muskegon, but the ban was to stay in place after the 8th in the city. Outlying areas, though, however, did lift it. November 9 brought good news with only 14 cases and one death in the city, which improved the strain on hospitals and allowed for the emergency hospital in Charles Moore's Hackley's house to be closed. Muskegon did continue to have issues though with sick residents tearing down placards that warned that influenza was present in their homes. One resident tried to get around this by putting his business sign over the placard even. It was announced on this day that U.S. government officials would be on their way to Muskegon to assist in rule enforcement of quarantine, including placing and monitoring placards on houses. After a good day on November 9th, The city lifted the ban on November 10th on public gatherings and meetings and restrictions on businesses. This would turn out to be in time for celebrations on November 11th as the armistice was signed ending combat in World War I. This timing, while it was nice for the celebrations, was bad for the disease. November 12th saw two cases in Muskegon, however by the 15th there were 15 cases reported and 350 statewide. This increase was attributed to celebrations and gatherings on November 11th in celebration. On November 18th, the emergency hospital, which had closed on November 9th, was needed again and had to reopen. The following day, Michigan had 1,193 new cases when three days prior saw only 350 cases reported. The Spanish flu had made a resurgence statewide. November 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, Michigan had four 10, and six cases, respectively. I also found an article on November 23rd mentioning Whitehall schools reopening after having three weeks off. I did see one article about a Muskegon school closing for several days, but couldn't find any specifics on more school closings in Muskegon. Schools in Muskegon Heights did close for one week or so during the height of the pandemic. The October summary report mentions that 65 students had contacted influenza in Muskegon, though. From late November to mid-December, Muskegon seems to have had a trickle of cases, with it never disappearing, but also not making any headlines with huge numbers of new cases. That is until December 13th, when 25 cases are reported. A citywide quarantine idea was floated, but this was shot down as outlying rural areas could not be made to do it as well, and travelers between would cause spread. I also found some new advice for those taking care of influenza victims, which was to Collect all discharge from eyes, nose, or mouth on gauze or cloth and have them kept in a paper funnel, which can be burned without handling the bits of cloth. Do not allow the discharge to dry. On December 18th, the city physician, Dr. Harrington, announced that several voluntary clinics would be going up around the city for the purpose of distributing, for free, a new vaccine that had been created by the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Hundreds are expected to receive it. On December 25th, Michigan's numbers were up to 2,741 new cases and saw a 100 deaths. The 30th was better, with only 2,020 cases and 12 deaths. Dr. Olin of the State Board of Health expressed his concern and frustration on the 25th. Quote, Every house where a case of influenza is reported should be placed under strict quarantine, and anyone who breaks the quarantine should be arrested and fined. No person would think of entering a house where there is a smallpox patient or, and no member of the family would think of mingling with his neighbors. This epidemic is worse than any smallpox epidemic Michigan has ever known. The people of Michigan must, for their own protection, observe quarantine regulations, otherwise it will take months before the disease is stamped out. It turns out he would be quite right. It would take not only months, but two more years before this influenza outbreak was under control. In Michigan, early 1919 saw cases on the rise again, and then drop off during the summer only to come back with renewed effort in the winter of 1919 and early months of 1920, with some days having 100 cases diagnosed. However, as I have gone on for quite long enough, I would like to stop right here instead of diving too deep into 1919 and 1920. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it as interesting as I did during my research. One of the things that was hard to discover during my research was what the voice of the people was during all of this. In today's pandemic, it is easy to go on social media and get a hundred different opinions on every decision made and what people feel about their situation. Aside from a few letters to the editor or looking at comments made by officials and what they say people are doing, it is much harder to see exactly what the average person thought in 1918 or what their reaction was to every new rule and regulation. So if you have any family stories of life in Muskegon during the 1918 pandemic, please share and help us round this story out and give us a better understanding of Muskegon's past. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with our next episode on September 16th.